Welcome, adventurers. Strange happenings in Rianok's life have led to even stranger circumstances. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon The rain had softened. Beads gathered, then dropped from her soaking hood, patting against her face. She was near finished with her third circuit around the grounds, this bell. As miserable as it may be to be wet and cold, she had long since learned to push it to the back of her mind. When you were a soldier, you did your best with the conditions at hand, made do with what you had, and lived with what you didn't. She could just post up under an eave somewhere until the rain had passed. But it was not in her nature. They had taken a job. Sarkeesian meant to do it right. To help where needed was all well and good, but there were practicalities to consider. Money was required for living expenses. Besides, there was only one more day left before this job was completed. They would be paid soon enough, and then, hopefully, they could find some more fulfilling work than guarding some rich person's exorbitant home. Sarkeesian's long strides brought her off of the expansive lawn and onto the gravel path that led from the street to the central building's main entrance. Turning her head toward the covered entrance, she squinted. The entryway was recessed into a large stone and plaster arch that covered grand steps and a landing that led to oversized double doors. Four lanterns burned on the walls there, and a fifth hung from the top of the arch, creating a pocket of yellow light that stood out against the dark night. There were two massive potted plants on the landing set to each side of the stairs, framing the doors. It was almost two bars before she saw him. Next to the potted plant on the left was where she had first thought he was, but then a flicker of motion. Not on the landing at all. Instead, at the base of the steps on the right, where light became shadow, she finally made out his shape. His dark green hood was drawn, forked beard spilling out from the shadow-covered face. Sarkeesian nodded. Colfin returned the gesture and then stepped back. Even though she knew where he was, she lost sight of him. He had let her see him. She smiled and turned to make her way away from the building out to the street gate. The job was a simple one. Even if the circumstances surrounding it were a bit light on details for her preference. Responding to a call for a limited security detail, they had met with an agent of a client who wished to remain unnamed. The agent, Getrick Dunn, had been vague about the details of this job until he had verified their credentials. 
Sarkeesian and Colborne's magical abilities seemed to be of particular interest to him. When these had been demonstrated, he asked if they would be able to identify other persons with the ability to use magic. This led to a lengthy, near lecture from Colborne on the various types of magics and casters that have been identified to date and the methods utilized by each. He was about to start in on the hows, whens, and wheres magic could be identified when the man held up his hand to stop the impromptu lesson. It was then that Getrick had relaxed, at least as much as he was going to. His client had uncovered news of a potential theft that was going to take place at their residence in the next five days. Mr. Dunn, who looked after the client's interests here in Halbiston, wanted to be sure he had persons who would be able to recognize and neutralize any magics that might be employed should this potential thief have access to such. Getrick had declined to answer the question of how they had come by the information of this potential theft, and simply said it was the only window of opportunity when asked why the next five days in particular. They were offered ten gold pieces a day, each, plus room and board. Their only task was to stay on the premises in question, supplementing the existing guard staff, and make sure nothing was taken from the residence in the next five days' time. Sarkeesian had asked for a moment to discuss it with her companions. Despite the fact that both Colborne and herself had the feeling that there was something more going on here, neither had any particular insight into what that might be, and they had no other real reason for objection. They had done more menial tasks for much worse pay since leaving Jamato six months ago. Protecting a wealthy home against theft wasn't really the kind of helping they were out and about in the world for, but with the money they earned from this job, they would be free to pursue their own interests for a good time to come. They had accepted the job, and with no other preparation, accompanied Getrick Dunn to a residence of grand scale in the East End, on the banks of the Usmana River. And here they still were, Sarkeesian thought, as she made the last few steps to the main gate. The main gate was wide enough for two carriages to pass side by side, but it had remained closed for the entire four days of their service. Beside that gate was a much smaller pedestrian gate, covered in a stone arch of its own. It too was closed, but not locked. There was a guard here at all times to check the credentials of those few who had come to the house in the days past. Sarkeesian nodded to the guard on duty, before pushing the gate open and stepping onto the wide cobblestone street beyond. The gate was pulled shut behind her. Finding Colborne had taken much less time than finding his brother. This particular gate was one that she would recognize anywhere now that they had traveled together for a time. The wizard was headed back her way, and so she waited. A bit soggy this evening, Colborne said when he had come to stand beside her. 
He turned toward the street and put his hands to his lower back, letting out a groan. Sarkeesian smiled. Any sign of our mumbling hand-ringer? The foot traffic that went up and down the honey road. The road on which they now stood was made up mostly of tourists and was busiest in the few bells before and after the dividing bell. In the evening time, which they were well into, the traffic became very light, the occasional group taking a late-night stroll. A carriage or two of a wealthy property owner from here returning home or heading out on some business or another. Colfin, Colborne, and Sarkeesian had each taken turns patrolling the estate, guarding the front door and watching the street, and had quickly become familiar with the patterns and flow of their assigned watch. They met every three bells or so to discuss what they had seen. The first day had passed with nothing of particular note. On the second night, Colfin had pointed out that a hooded passer-by, most likely a halfling given the height, had made three separate passes in front of the house. If it had only been twice, he might have thought nothing of it, as a tourist was very likely to pass up the street and then return into town. The drawn hood was not what caught his attention, given the night's chill. Instead, a lock of fire-red hair that caught the lantern light had been the minor detail that had stuck in his mind. It was that detail that had made the return pass something he remembered, not necessarily something he considered or worried about, just noted. On the third pass, however, with Colfin hidden inside the shadow of the footgate, the bit of red hair drew his attention yet again. And this time, it did draw curiosity. The figure had stopped and turned to look full upon the estate. Seeing this, Colfin had stood tall, intent to see if anything would follow. It was the bit that happened next that made him report the incident as odd. As soon as his attention was upon the figure, its posture stiffened. For a beat, it looked as if it would look his way, but then froze again. The figure then mumbled something under its breath, as if talking to itself. Pale hands came out from under the cloak, clasped together nervously. One more emphatic whisper, an angry complaint or protest. Then the figure turned and made its way back toward the center of town. They had all decided it seemed clumsy for a thief, but Sarkeesian had said to keep an eye out for their red-haired friend all the same. There was no sign of said stranger on the third day. However, Colborne, who had the midday watch, pointed out a peculiarity. An old, white-haired gnome had come very near the house and set up an easel and canvas to paint facing the space between this estate and the next. Though he hadn't seen anyone do this yet, it didn't seem overly strange given the regal nature of this area. After half-bell, Colborne had gone to look 
and see what the gnome's subject was. The sketch on the canvas was crude, but it dealt mostly with the estate they guarded. The gnome's voice was high-pitched and scratchy, and he seemed irritated that Colborne was asking him questions about his art. Not one to be antagonistic, Colborne had turned to return to the main gate. When he was five steps away, in a lull of noise, he caught it. The white-haired gnome was mumbling to himself under his breath. An argumentative whisper. Colborne turned to look back. The gnome clasped his hands before him nervously, gave a forced smile, and then turned back to his work. The little artist had picked up his easel just a few bars later and moved to the other side of the estate. It seemed every time Colborne looked his way, the man was jerking his gaze away. Colborne was just about to go talk to the gnome a second time when he picked up his easel and left. This bizarre encounter was brought up at the next shift change. Coincidence? They went back and forth on it, but decided it most likely was, but also that it bared further watch. Disguise via magic was entirely possible. Two bells after soul rise on the fourth day, while Sarkeesian was sipping a cup of tea and pondering the clouds in the sky, clouds that promised more rain, her attention was drawn to the street. The thoroughfare was just beginning to come alive with morning traffic. A young dwarven woman on the opposite side of the road stalked in a hunched position, pacing back and forth. It wasn't the pacing that had drawn Sarkeesian's eye. It was the mutterings, mutterings that were disguised in no way. The young dwarf was having a full-blown argument with someone who was not, in any way that Sarkeesian could see, real. The woman gestured and threw up her hands, stopping dead in her tracks from time to time, as if to listen. On these occasions, she would wring her hands in a nervous fashion. Three different persons, all with the same personal quirks in a span of three days, seemed a most unlikely coincidence. Sarkeesian thought a moment, trying to decide which would be better, to go and fetch Colborne to check for the presence of magic, or to go and talk with their repeat visitor to see if she could sniff out the intent behind all of this. She started walking out into the street. The woman might leave if she took the time to go wake Colborne. Five paces shy of her quarry, she actually caught the tail end of words hissed under the young woman's breath. Well, if you knew it was here the whole time, why didn't you see so earlier? The dwarf's back was to her, but as she finished that statement, tossing her hands in the air, she spun, beginning to pace back toward the house and stopped dead. Their eyes locked. Both stood unmoving for a few beats. Sarkeesian wasn't looking into the eyes of a criminal mastermind. There was fear there, uncertainty, frustration. Turning her palms up, Sarkeesian slowly extended her hands away from her belt where her sword hung. Hello, my name is was all she got out before the young woman bolted. 
Sarkeesian could have given pursuit, could have caught her if she wished. But she chose not to. Placing her hand upon her chin, she watched the dwarf flee. She felt conflicted. She truly had no idea if their presence here and the seemingly strange visitor were related in any way. Sarkeesian told the Flint Fist brothers of the happenings before she retired to sleep for a bit. They would all need to be awake tonight. If anyone was going to steal anything, they were running out of time. Colborne leaned forward to stretch and then righted himself again. No mumbling, no hand-wringing. Sarkeesian had an odd pang of... of what? Disappointment? The look in the young woman's eyes had stayed with her. If she could talk to her, maybe they could help. All right, Sarkeesian replied. I'll watch the street. Switch places with Colfin so he can walk the grounds. We'll all meet up in two more bells. Colborne smiled before giving a single exaggerated nod to indicate he had understood his orders. Sarkeesian smiled back. Eyes white tonight, friend. The job is almost done. Colborne turned away from Sarkeesian and made his way back through the gate. Raising her hands over her head, Sarkeesian stretched her back, letting out a yawn. They had all been working on short rest, so all three could be awake for as many hours as possible over the last few days. Continuing her calisthenics, she rotated to her right, extending her left arm, and then left, extending her right. It moved. Forty paces away, a shadow near the fence. She wasn't even sure she had seen anything at first, but then it happened again. Shadow moving inside shadow. Whatever it was pushed through the narrow wrought iron bars of the fence. Sarkeesian turned and pulled the gate open, hurrying back through toward the estate. Colborne had only made it a few paces down the path, but now he stood there, frozen in place, looking in the same direction that Sarkeesian had been just a moment before. Sensing her presence, he kept his eyes focused on the lawn. His voice, low, came over his shoulder. Did you see that? She was about to reply she had, when a little ball of darkness darted across the lawn, making a straight line for the west side of the building. Sarkeesian broke into a run. The games of cinder, games of shadow and mischief are afoot. Stay tuned next week for the conclusion of Child of Shadow, Child of Mischief. Hello, my faithful patrons. Just wanted to say that uh, as you are listening to these stories, you really are 
uh, with me on my own learning experience. And this story, which is going to be quite a long one, as you can tell, with uh, seven episodes, it will wind up being. Uh, it turns out that this actually is, if you look at it, really is three different stories that I wound up uh, telling. And it just came to me as I was writing that uh, I needed to write all three of those stories. It just happens, unlike other times, I wrote them back to back to back and have made them into one story. So this story easily could have been broken into the first part where Rianok discovers her abilities at home and leaves. A second part where she is drawn to or can, runs from home and uh, finds herself in Borgen uh, and is tasked with this job that Cinder seems to have some interest in her taking. And the final story here, which is uh, going to just be these last two episodes, is her coming to the town of Halveston and doing the job uh, that she has taken and the ramifications of that, which you may have some already some inklings about what happens here. But anyway, just wanted to kind of point out that these this very long story could actually also be considered three stories back to back to back, uh, all about the single character. So one way or another, please stay tuned and it'll be all done next week. Love you guys and thanks so much.